Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 68. Brewers drop a series in Toronto, but they're still in first place. We're still in first place. We're still in first place. The rallying cry for Brewer degenerates right now as it has been a pretty rough month with a lot of injuries and a lot of losses. We'll talk about that as they get set for four games set beginning in Cincy this afternoon. The Bucks haven't said anything about Adrian Griffin officially yet. Is that weird? It's been a week now since that news broke or the rumors broke on Twitter. I still think he's obviously the guy, but it's just odd we haven't seen any progression there. I did have a question about Giannis having too much power in my email this week from one of our B93 listeners. We'll break that down. Matt Schneidman. Packer reporter for The Athletic had an explosive article about Aaron Rodgers and Brian Gutekunst that was going viral on Wednesday or Thursday on Packer Twitter. We will discuss that, and it's National Donut Day. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run. Morgan a smash up the middle, base hit the center. Here comes Gomez around third. A throw and the Brewers win. Here's the snap. He looks, he throws, it's a interception. And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive gets inside, leads in, knocked away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul on a pinnacle ball. Throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. And they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, we wrapped up the B93 morning show today talking about National Donut Day and how spoiled we are. If you're a Sheboygan listener, we have listeners all over to this podcast. But if you're a B93 listener that also listens to the podcast, which is the majority of people, we are so spoiled in Sheboygan. I say that with both pizza and with donuts. Because if you had somebody ask you, if you have somebody coming to visit Sheboygan, for the first time in their lives, and they're asking you a long-time or forever Sheboygan resident places to go, there are so many local pizza spots and so many local bakeries and donut places you could send them to, and you know they're going to have a fabulous meal, a great slice and a great donut. You know you can't go wrong with a variety of them. That's not true of a lot of places. My wife and I do a lot of traveling in the U.S. trying to get to all the national parks and all of the different baseball stadiums. And the first thing we do in every city we go to, which maybe speaks to us being 10 years old, the first thing we do when we get there is we look at what spots get the best donut rating in the city we're in. Go on TripAdvisor, Yelp, go on Google Reviews, whatever. Just Google best donut from where I am. And we've been to a lot of places, and every time I have a donut in a different city, they're not bad. I mean, all donuts are good. But more often than not, it just grows my appreciation for growing up in the city that I grew up in with all of the local donut places we have that are longtime bakeries, City Bakery, Johnston's Bakery, Oostburg Bakery, Westside Bakery. These places have been around for decades and decades and decades, and they're still doing it, and they're doing it top level. 
that's just my appreciation for that. When I have a donut in a different city that maybe isn't to that level, it just makes it that much greater for the spoiled life I have led in many ways. Not just in donut ways, but in many ways growing up in Sheboygan. But that part of it, we've had maybe one spot I've been to that could rival or maybe even surpass the donuts in Sheboygan at some of the longtime places here. Last year on Memorial Day weekend, we went to St. Louis for the Cardinals Brewers. They got spanked. Both games were there. It was miserable, but the stadium's beautiful, and that part of the city was beautiful. But when we got there, the first thing we did was look up Best Donut in St. Louis, and it came up with a place that was not far from our hotel. It was near the downtown area, walkable to Bush Stadium. It's a place called Faro Donuts. If you are ever in St. Louis, go to Faro Donuts. I knew we were in a good spot when we got there and there was a line out the door. I knew immediately. And it was a weekend, so you kind of expect that on a Saturday or Sunday. But I cannot describe to you the crispy exterior of these donuts and the soft interior and the frosting. And they just had basic stuff, which I also appreciate. You don't have to get too fancy. You've got the 98-mile-an-hour fastball, and that's what works. And we went there the Saturday we were in town. And then normally we'd try to switch it up and find somewhere else to go to. But it was so good, we went back and stood in line on Sunday. And then we got some on Monday, I'm pretty sure, as we left town and had car donuts. That, in all of the places we've been, in Minnesota, in South Dakota, in where have we all been? I don't even know. Utah, I mean, East Coast, Maine, Massachusetts, Boston, New York. That is the best foreign donut, away game donut I've ever had. Pharaoh Donuts in St. Louis. But most of the time, we have donuts, and I think they're not as good as Johnston's, or they're not as good as Oostburg Bakery, or they're not as good as City Bakery or Westside Bakery. It's remarkable how many great spots we have. And pizza's the same way, where we have probably 9 to 10 local pizza places that have been doing their own thing for 50 or 60 years. That's not true of a lot of cities, and that's not true of other cities in the state. Uh, we've got a good in regards to donuts and pizza in Sheboygan County. It doesn't say that on the Welcome To sign, but it could, and it should, on National Donut Day today. It's also National Leave Work Early Day today, which is another nice little spot for great weather on a Friday. Go get a donut, get out of work early. Leave an Excel spreadsheet open that says work stuff, and then leave early. Make it look like you're coming back, and then never do. All right, let's talk about where do you want to start we can start with the Brewers. It was a tough series in Toronto. Toronto's a good team. A lot of the AL East teams are very talented. Every team in the AL East is over 500. Every team in the AL East, maybe surprising, maybe Baltimore surprising. They're in second place. They have one of the best records in Major League Baseball. They're going to be at AmFam Field not that long from now, a week-ish. Brewers are in Cincy. Is it right after that? It might be right after that. Baltimore, then Oakland will be at AmFam Field. Baltimore might be a bit surprising. They were on the rise last year. I don't know anybody expecting them to be 15 or 16 games over 500 through two months. But every team in that division is expecting to be above 500 and competing for a playoff spot. And when you go and take on a team like that that's relatively healthy, and they are, it's a tough spot to be in when you're not relatively healthy. We talked about this on the podcast on Friday. I talked about it on the air during the, the week. I got the expected, no excuses, play like a champion Texan from some of the B93 listeners, which I get. I don't disagree with that to some level. But there's a level of injury where you are missing so many key players that even the no excuses play like a champion or next man up and all of that sort of mentality, at some point, it's just overwhelming. And you could make a case, too, well, Eric Lauer wasn't pitching that well. Are they really losing anything by not having him on the field? Okay, there are some guys you could probably say that about. It looks like Luis Arias is going to come back on the homestand against Baltimore and Oakland. That's good news because these young players for the Brewers that were red hot in April when the team was red hot, 
pitchers in Major League Baseball have figured them out. I believe I said that in the middle of April when Bryce Terang was hitting really well and Garrett Mitchell before he got hurt and Joey Weimer came up and popped a couple of home runs right away. You love that. It's a great sign. But you know now that there's video and now that there's a scouting report and now that pitchers know how to pitch around the hot zones and find the cold zones in their swings, you know there's going to be some sort of reckoning there or a balancing out, and that's what we've seen. And now the young guys are going to have to make adjustments, and it's not easy on the fly when you're making your first ever major league appearance to do that when you're scuffling to figure out how to adjust things, and now you make the adjustment. They made the adjustment. Now you have to make the adjustment. So for that reason, Luis Arias coming back should be helpful. He's played a bunch at the major league level. We've seen him be very productive. We've seen him go into cold streaks. But he knows more. He has more experience. And then this will allow guys like Bryce Terang not to be out there every day. Terang's defense, I would say, there's not a lot of holes there. And I guess if you're looking way down the road at a replacement for Willie Adamas, if they don't sign him defensively, I feel really good about what I've seen from Bryce Terang. But when you get a guy like Luis Arias back, a guy who has hit 250 and hit 20-plus bombs in at the major league level, that should allow Bryce Terang to hit the bench a little bit, be more of a utility player, not where he's grinding out there every day. So that will help too. But if you want to make those cases, it's just we are so deep into the injury well with so many key players They're just trying to keep their heads above water. Luckily, the division has been bad as we've gone over, and they've been able to tread water. They're still in first place by a half game. They were up two games. Now they're up a half game in first place in the NL Central with the Cardinals, I'm pretty sure, in Pittsburgh. I'm not sure who we want to win that. I still think we want the Cardinals to lose as many games as possible, even if that means Pittsburgh may temporarily challenge or take over first place in the division. Again, I can't find myself getting worried about Pittsburgh until they're still there in late August or September. But that's the matchup they have going on. But luckily, division has been bad, and the Brewers have been able to keep themselves in a spot where you can say we're in contention for the division and we're in contention for a playoff spot, and they're just waiting for these guys to come back. And hopefully when they do, they will be able to produce more and play better. This Brewer team, it's the offense. I mean, it's the offense that we saw playing well in April where they were finally doing the things that we've asked them to do for the last couple of years when the offense has not been good in 2021 or the second half of 2021, most of 2022. It looked early this year like they had made those changes where they were going the opposite way and they weren't trying to hit the home run every time. Well, they've fallen into some tendencies, and a lot of those young guys who were sparking that in April, as we said, pitchers have adjusted to them, and they're not getting on base as much and not getting as many hits as we saw them get in the first two or three weeks of April. That's been a problem. But when the Brewers score four runs, they're 25-4. and four. <laughs> They scored four runs in the win in Game 2 against Toronto. They win that one 4-2. to two. We'll talk about Julio Tehran in a second. But that's how good they are. And four runs doesn't feel like you're asking a lot. We don't need an offensive juggernaut out there scoring seven or eight runs a game like we did when you think back to some of those teams in 09 or 2010, the Ken Maka teams where you had Braun and Fielder and Hart in their prime and they were pounding the baseball and putting big runs up but they had no pitching. You don't need an offense that's going to be a juggernaut rolling people over every game. You need four runs and they win almost 90% of the time, 25 and four with four runs. But couldn't get it done on Wednesday afternoon. Kevin Gosman's one of the best in baseball, and he showed why. Didn't give up a run. Had 11 strikeouts on Thursday, right? I got screwed up with the short week. The day before that on Wednesday, Julio Tehran pitched his way to a win. No strikeouts and no walks from any Brewer pitcher in that game. Only the seventh time in franchise history in the first since 92 where not a Brewer pitcher walked or struck out anyone, and they got a win, and they had just enough offense to get the win. But Tehran What a revelation he's been. I don't know how long this is going to last. 
they need it to last at least another month. It would be great if it went the whole season. But you just need to get through these starts without your core guys. We've talked about this. Every time you get a decent start from Colin Ray or a great start from Julio Tehran, you think, okay, that's one more start that we're closer to getting Woodruff back and Miley back, and we were able to bridge that gap. Tehran in two starts, you couldn't ask for anything better. 11 and a third and one run given up, one earned run given up, two runs overall. He was phenomenal on Wednesday, and Craig Council talked about it after the game. He just brings that veteran savvy. He hasn't really pitched in Major League Baseball since 2021 and only one start in that season, so he truly hasn't pitched probably since 2020, and that was the pandemic year. But he brings you savvy. He brings you a pitcher who knows how to pitch, who knows his spots. He knows his strengths. He knows his weaknesses. He knows the spots that he's trying to hit, and he's playing the contact. I had a texter make a fantastic Bull Durham reference where when on Thursday morning we were talking about the Wednesday win with no strikeouts and no walks. He said, very democratic star from Julio Tehran. Throw more ground balls. They're more democratic. I don't try to strike everybody out. Strikeouts are boring. Besides that, they're fascist. Throw some ground balls. It's more democratic. But he's been great in two starts. You hope it can continue. And he looks really solid. Velocity's not bad, and he's clearly hitting his spots on the corners, mixing pitches very well. But Council said that. He just brings you a guy who knows how to pitch, and hopefully he can continue to do that because they still need it for at least a month and probably a month and a half. It would be great if he's a fixture in the rotation, if he's a guy that they can rely on for the rest of the year. But in the short term, you're just worried about connecting the two halves of the season where you're trying to stay in first place, stay in second place, stay in striking distance with all these pitching injuries. And every start you get from somebody you didn't expect to get a good start from is a check mark. You put a check mark next to that, hopefully get a win and then move on to the next start. You're just trying to fill the different holes right now. It's like whack-a-mole injury wise for Craig council. He's just trying to make sure that we can get to a point where Woodruff is back and Miley is back and hopefully Lauer is back and healthy and pitching the way that he used to pitch. And you can get to that juncture and be in it and start throwing the five or six guys that you expected to throw at the beginning of the year. But that Tehran start salvaged one game in the series. You lose the series. They're two games over 500, 29 and 27. Four-gamer in Cincy starting tonight. Corbin Burns on the hill. We'll see if he can build off of his last start where he did look more Cy Young-like his last time out. Had that one run given up in the first inning. San Francisco was clean after that. They really need him to be Corbin Burns. We need him to be Cy Young Burns all the time. But especially with the injuries, we just can't afford to have the guys that you're relying on, Burns and Peralta, who has not been all that great. He was okay on Thursday. Gave up the three runs in a blink with two home runs, but then didn't give up anything after that. Six innings of three-run ball. He kept them in the game, I suppose. But you really need the few guys that are healthy, that were healthy at the beginning of the year, that still are healthy. You truly need them to be as close to the max potential of themselves that they can be at because you just don't know. You don't know how long the Tehran run's going to last. You don't know how long this nice little run Colin Ray is on, how long that's going to last. You need Burns to be Cy Young caliber. You need Freddie to be all-star caliber while we're waiting for the reinforcements to come. First of four in Cincinnati beginning this afternoon. They've got a Zach Brown band concert after the show today. That's why it's starting at an odd time. 4-10 first pitch for the Brewers and the Reds. And the Reds are only three or four games back. They've been pretty hot. They're getting close to 500 as well. All right, let's talk about the Bucks. Is it odd that Adrian Griffin has not been officially introduced as the Milwaukee Bucks head coach? It's a little odd, isn't it? Or a little weird? Because that news broke on Saturday. Nothing was confirmed by the Bucks, which you see a lot. You see the blue check marks, the Woges and the Shams of the world. And when we're talking about NBA basketball 
or the Shefties of the world and you're talking about NFL football, they always have the jump. And then a couple of days later, you hear about whatever coaching hire, whatever transaction they're talking about. Well, we're a week removed now. And I'm not sure what they're waiting for unless they're waiting for the NBA Finals to be done before they officially start anything offseason. Or maybe the NBA wants them to do that. I don't know. I guess, well, Nick Nurse had his official intro with Philly. That rumor came out, and then 48 hours later, Nick Nurse was doing a press conference, an introductory press conference in Philadelphia where he was getting skewered by the Philadelphia media. There's no Toronto nice in Philly, Nick Nurse. There's no Canada nice that you're dealing with there. They were hitting him with some hard stuff in that introductory press conference. But that happened in short order. I would have expected, and we talked about this on Tuesday, that by Friday's podcast, I guess they don't care about our podcast schedule. (laughs) But by Friday's podcast, I figured we'd have some official word or at least you'd have the date and time of an introductory press conference. I don't know what, what the issue could be or what they could still be talking about when it sounds like Griffin is the guy. I did have, and we talked about this on Tuesday, I said we were going to probably have some Bucks fans out there that were going to say, does Giannis have too much power? Because the visual of this is that he was heavily involved in the hiring process. The rumor was that Griffin was his guy. He had the least experience of the finalists, but because he was Giannis's guy, it felt like that's the direction they went in. And they did their due diligence, and there was a good interview with Zach Lowe, if you listen to the Lowe podcast at all, one of the best NBA podcasts out there. Simmons is really, really good too, but the Lowe podcast is one of the best. And he talked on Tuesday or Wednesday on ESPN about how highly regarded the process was among NBA circles for this coaching search. Made it sound like it wasn't just Giannis saying, I want this guy and that's the direction they went in. But that's certainly what it looks like to a casual observer. Does Giannis have too much power? And the email that I got from a B93 listener on Wednesday, I'm paraphrasing here because I deleted it. But essentially it said, Why is everybody so chill with Giannis having so much power to decide a head coach, but when Aaron Rodgers wanted to have say on the roster or the coaching decisions, everybody told him to shut up and throw the damn ball, and that emailer said, I don't quite get that, and I told him the easy answer is people like Giannis. That's the short answer, and I think it's pretty accurate. People like Giannis. And I sent that back to him, and he said, with which was a good response, said, well, people used to like Rodgers the way they liked Giannis. And then he said, so you're telling me the advice for Giannis is to not get into the rhubarb and go on these ayahuasca tea benders in order to stay in the good graces of the fan base. And I don't think that's that far-fetched either. I don't think that's wrong either. What I compared it to, first of all, it's different. NBA and NFL culture are just a little bit different. Every league is a superstar-driven league. Every NFL, MLB, even NHL to an extent, NBA, every league is a superstar-driven league. That's who sells the jerseys. That's who sells the tickets. That's who gets eyes on TVs. And even though you'll watch regardless, like Packer fans would when they're good, when they're bad, whatever, superstars drive the league. But I think that's more the case in the NBA than anything. And I told him in a follow-up email Another part of this, I think, is not just that the NBA is more of a superstar-driven league. So we are used to, as NBA fans, having the star players have a say in who they want as the coach and what teammates they want and that kind of stuff. We're just used to that over the course of 30 or 40 years. But I think a specific component to the Bucks story 
is that the Bucks were so bad before the Giannis era and had been for a while. They were great in the early 70s when Kareem and Oscar were here. They had a fantastic run in the 80s. They just ran into the Dr. J-led Sixers and the Moses Malone-led Sixers and the Larry Bird Celtics, and they just couldn't quite get over the hump, despite the fact that they won numerous Midwest Division titles, made runs to the second and third round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. They just couldn't get over that hump. But from that point, from 1989 or 1990, I want to say 88 was the last time they really made a run. But from that point all the way to 2001, where they had one glimmer of hope, one year with one glimmer of hope, and then everything basically after that until Giannis started taking big steps forward and you could tell there was actual talent on this team in 2016 or 2017, it was really, really bad. Almost three decades worth of bad. And for a small market NBA team... Bucks fans look at Giannis as the unicorn that he is, and he gets special treatment because of that. Because for people my age, Bucks fans my age that are in their 30s and 40s, at no point, at no point did I ever think that I was going to see the Bucks have the MVP. At no point did I think they'd have the defensive player of the year, and they'd be the same person. At no point did I think they'd have multiple All-Stars again. They had the one, I think it must have been 01, where they had Glenn Robinson and Ray Allen Wren, but at no point did I think I'd see that again. And you'd get laughed out of the room if you said the Bucks would win a title. And all of that has happened. And all of it is due to Giannis. So because of that, Bucks fans ascribe a little more sentimentality and a bit more specialness to Giannis, if that's even a word. I don't think it is. But I do think that adds into it. And that is why a lot of Bucks fans have said, yeah, if it keeps Giannis here, if it keeps Giannis happy and the coach is competent, look, you can't have just somebody crazy out there because Giannis wants him. If he's a up-and-coming coach, which it looks like Adrian Griffin is, if he's widely respected, which it looks like he is, and he's paid his dues, and he does have the ring from the 2019 team, and he is going to be the next guy somewhere, then it makes sense if the cherry on top is that Giannis wants him to be the guy. But I do believe that's a part of it. I believe the Bucks franchise was so bad and was on the way out the door and going to Seattle for Giannis to reel all of that back in the diehard Bucks fans say, sure, whatever you want. It's like Thanasis being on the roster. Would Thanasis be on a roster in the NBA if it weren't for Giannis? Probably not. I do think his play has dipped off. Not that we want to turn this into a Thanasis podcast, but it felt like the games he got in early in his time in Milwaukee, he was a pretty competent NBA player where you felt like you could get some quality minutes from him. I don't know that I feel that way, at least in the last year. But that's a part of it, too. If you have to fill the 15th spot on a 15-man roster with Giannis's brother to keep his head in it and to keep perspective and to keep him happy, that's the price you pay for a once-in-a-lifetime superstar. I compared it on the air to Brett Favre because while I believe that emailer is correct, that at one point Aaron Rodgers was revered not to the level that Giannis is, but he was the most liked athlete in the state from probably 2010 through, what, 2014, 2015, 2016. And then we got to know him a little bit more. <laughs> and he started to take some weird turns with his personality and the drama with the with the different women he was dating and the ayahuasca tea and the I've been immunized and all of that stuff. Every year it felt like there were two or three things that disconnected him as the favorite athlete in the state of Wisconsin that got him further and further from that. But I compared Giannis to Favre. I compared Giannis to Favre in the mid-90s because even at Rodgers' peak of likability, which is probably 2011, 2010, 2011, 2012, even at his peak, I don't know that every Packer fan loved him. When Brett Favre was in his heyday in the mid to late 90s, 
Everybody loved Brett Favre. I don't know a single sports fan in the state of Wisconsin that did not like Brett Favre. The man could do literally no wrong. And now we've seen him do a lot of wrong. And a lot of Packer fans still love Brett Favre. Even with some of the off-the-field stuff now. And the off-the-field stuff we saw when he went to New York. And then the whole welfare scandal, which is a disaster. It's a really sad, disgusting story in Mississippi. But in his peak... Nobody was loved more from what I've seen in my time on this earth as a sports fan in the state of Wisconsin. So I compared it. I compared Giannis to Favre in 1995. Let's say in 95 or 96. Let's say after the 95 NFC Championship game. And the Packers lose in Dallas again. And it's a feeling among the fan base. I don't remember people feeling this way, but I felt like there's just a longer leash in that era with a head coach in any sport. But let's just say in 1995, after five or four years in the NFL as the head coach of the Packers, that they felt like Mike Holmgren wasn't the guy. That he just he was the guy to get the franchise going in the right direction. He was the guy to ignite Brett Favre and turn him into an MVP. He was the guy to get them to the NFC Championship game. But he wasn't the guy to get them beyond that. Let's just say that as a hypothetical. And they moved on from Holmgren after 95 and said, we just need to find the, the coach to take us that last step to get us to the Super Bowl. And let's say during that offseason, they had Brett Favre involved in the coaching decisions. He had just won an MVP. He was in his mid to late 20s, like Giannis is. I don't think any Packer fan would have blinked an eye at that. We all would have said, of course, of course, Brett Favre should be involved in these discussions. He's the best player on the team. He's the best player as a part of this resurgence of the franchise. You could argue him and Reggie White should be right in the middle of players being involved in a potential head coaching decision. That's what I compared what the Bucs just did to if you looked at it from a Packer lens. Now, certainly the circumstances are different because Budenholzer won a title. They wouldn't fire Holmgren after he won a title. But just given their age, Giannis's age now and Favre's age then, where they are in their careers with the MVPs and how important they are to the franchise, I think that's the comparison. Not the Rodgers comparison. I think that's the comparison where Rodgers had just gone on so long in the last few years, burning bridges for the most part with the fan base, with some of his odd activity. But I think even at Rodgers' peak, I don't know that he would have been given a pass the way that maybe Giannis has in this coaching decision or the way Favre would have been had they gone through that in the mid-'90s. I don't remember in the 98-99 to transition when Holmgren just left on his own volition to go be the coach GM in Seattle. I don't remember a lot of articles or conversation about Brett Favre being involved when they hired Ray Rhodes in 99, and then when Rhodes was gone after one year, was he involved at all in the conversations of bringing Mike Sherman in? I'd have to do a Google search and see if there were any articles written at the time. It was a different era media-wise. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I would think he was, because at that point, he was still such a massive figure, and still, we thought, in that time frame, an MVP candidate, maybe he was involved in that. But that was what I thought was the comparison. That's why people are so chill about Giannis, because he's viewed in the same way that Favre was in the mid-90s with the Packers. Certainly not in terms of total fans, but in terms of the percentage of fans of that fan base that love him. Favre was near 100% then, and Giannis is near 100% now. But that was an interesting email. I knew we'd get into those conversations at some point as it relates to this coaching process, this hiring process, because Giannis has been reportedly heavily involved and Adrian is his guy. I do find it just a bit peculiar that we have not heard anything official about Adrian Griffin as of yet. Real quick in the NBA, game one of the finals last night, I bet on the Nuggets. I made a snap decision an hour before game one, even though Jimmy Butler has literally stolen hundreds of We'll say hundreds of my dollars. He has stolen some of my John Rom winnings. 
because I've been betting against the Heat. I bet against them, of course, when they played the Bucks, And then I didn't really bet against them against New York. I thought they were the better team. I bet against them basically the whole Celtics series and lost my hat there too. And I said to myself at the end of Game 7, because I bet on the Celtics to win Game 7, I said to myself, Self, we can't bet against Jimmy Butler anymore, even though the Nuggets are the more talented team. How many times have we said that, where Team X is the more talented team and the Heat win? I cannot do this anymore. I gave myself a little pep talk in the mirror. If you're not going to bet, either bet with Jimmy or don't bet. And then 60 minutes before tip-off of Game 1, I couldn't resist. And again, I fell into those same arguments of, The Nuggets are the better team. They have the guy that probably should have won the MVP. They're fully healthy. They've got home court. They've got the altitude advantage at Denver, which is an advantage, especially in a game one. We'll see how Miami adjusts for game two. And just top to bottom, the Nuggets roster is better. So I bet on the Nuggets to win in six games or less at minus 150. Six games or less. And I may or may not have thrown a tickler in on the Nuggets winning the series in five games or less at plus 140. I may have thrown just a little bit on that, too. Just a little sprinkle. Not going to hurt anybody. But I just couldn't stop myself because, once again, it felt like a no-brainer. This Heat team is going to run out of steam eventually. And Jimmy was bad in Game 1. Max Struess was 0-4-10 and 0-4-9 from beyond the arc in Game 1. I can't tell you how many shots I saw Max Struess take last night in Game 1 and thought, would have made that against the Bucs? Would have made that against Milwaukee? And he was bricking shots. Caleb Martin was bricking shots. They got a little bit out of Gabe Vincent, but those role players that have been helping Jimmy along the way did not have good games last night. And the Nuggets won handily. Look, it's just one game. Remember the Bucs in 2021? They went in and lost, I believe, both games, one and two, by 10 or 11 points. And I'm sure nationally everybody is riding the Bucs off that year. Then they go out and win four straight and win the title against Phoenix. It's just one game. But I liked what I saw for a guy that has money on Denver. I liked what I saw from the Nuggets last night. Yeah, I simply could not resist putting money on Denver. It just feels like Miami. Remember in the video game Mario World or any of the Super Mario video games, star power. You'd get that star and then... And it'd go on for whatever, 30 seconds, and you couldn't be beat. Nothing could happen to you. You could run over every chasm. You could run into every Goomba. You could do whatever you wanted to do. And as long as that song was going and Mario was flashing, you had no problems in your world. That's what I feel like the Miami Heat have been doing. Granted, their song has been going on a lot longer than 30 seconds. But at some point against a quality opponent, which Denver is, that star power is going to run out. I'm betting it runs out in the finals, but if they lose again, I have no one to blame but myself. I will have bet against and lost almost every Heat bet I've made in the postseason. I'm hoping this Denver win in six or less and in five. I love both. I love for both of those to pay. I'm primarily concerned about winning in six games or less. I'm hoping that just gets some of my money back that Jimmy Butler has taken from me with his stone-cold shooting in the course of this whole playoff run. But game one in the books last night, game two is coming up on Saturday in Denver. Before they head to Miami, the one thing I get worried about Denver, their road record was abysmal this year. They were 17-24 and on the road. For a team that's the number one seed in the West and won almost 60 games, 17-24 and on the road. That gets me a little bit concerned, their ability to win on the road. They did win both games in L.A. as they swept LeBron out of the Western Conference Finals. But game two in Denver on the way on Saturday. And I do want to talk quick about the Matt Schneidman athletic article for the Packers. 
It didn't give us any new information, but man, was it going viral on Twitter and Facebook. Packer fans could not stop talking about it. There was an article that he wrote on The Athletic that interviewed a Packer source on the condition of anonymity. Like, this is Watergate or something, deep throat. It was so weird. Like, it's not that serious, guys. Trust me. But he, he interviewed a Packer employee with knowledge of the situation on the condition of anonymity. And then he also apparently interviewed Aaron Rodgers and had quotes from both in the article. And the whole article talks about the relationship between Goody and Rodgers and how it fell apart. And it's exactly what we all knew. I don't understand why people were acting like this was brand new information. The long and short of it is Goody drafted Jordan Love and traded up to draft him in 2020. And ever since then, Aaron Rodgers has had a dump in his pants about Brian Gutekunst. And if you want to say that he should, fine. I don't care. I guess I could understand being the franchise quarterback and being the MVP and having won the title, and then they draft your successor. Yeah, you're not going to feel good about that. And he used that as the chip on his shoulder to win two MVPs. But that was the long and short of the article. The biggest reveal in the article, which had a lot of people talking, was that apparently, according to this source on the condition of anonymity, Apparently, Rodgers' agent, Dave Dunn, did in 2021 go to Mark Murphy and say, we want Brian Gutekunst fired. That would have been after the loss to Tom Brady in the 2020 NFC Championship game. That offseason, or relatively soon, it sounds like, after that game, they did, Dave Dunn did, apparently go to Mark Murphy and say, we want Goody gone. And to Mark Murphy's credit, Again, as we've talked about with Mark Murphy, say what you want about Mark Murphy, but he did not acquiesce. He didn't do any of that. He said, no, we're not firing Brian Gutekunst, and you're under contract, and you're going to play quarterback, and that's exactly what happened. you got to tip your cap a little bit to Mark Murphy there. But that was confirmation of a rumor that we had heard that he wanted Goody out. If you consider the backer random source with anonymity, if you consider that a concrete source, that would verify all of the articles and all of the rumors that we heard that, in fact, Rodgers did go to the Packers or Dave Dunn went to the Packers saying they wanted Goody out. They want him gone. Now, when Schneidman posed that question or that scenario to Rodgers, he said, well, look, that was my agent. <laughs> that wasn't me. That was my agent. If, if you have to, if that's what he did, you got to talk to him about that. You can't talk to me about that. He deflected, deflected, deflected. But that was probably the biggest nugget from that article that would maybe confirm things that we thought were happening in the offseason in 2020 or 2021, that that is how low the relationship was between Rodgers and Goody. And then Rodgers talked about the FaceTiming thing again where he gets no cell service in his beautiful mansion, and because of that, you have to FaceTime him. Doesn't FaceTime use cell service? I don't know. Maybe I'm just a technological delinquent at this point in my life. I feel like FaceTime, is that not a call or is that data-driven so if you're on Wi-Fi, you can FaceTime? Who wants to FaceTime? FaceTime is offensive. If somebody FaceTimes me, I am offended. It's bad enough when the phone rings and you've got to pick it up. But a FaceTime with someone staring at you before you can even answer the call? But that's what Rogers wanted. That must just use data or Wi-Fi. And Rogers said, look, was Goody trying to contact me more than I was trying to contact him? Sure, but I was responding here and there and on and on and on the article went and then it eventually led to the darkness retreat and then when he came out of the darkness retreat, how surprised he was and everything we've heard since then from the McAfee interview. But I don't know, the story was very much viral on Packer Twitter on Wednesday or Thursday whenever it dropped and I don't know that we've had a whole lot of new information there. Credit to him, I mean, great for Matt Schneidman and his brand and all the clicks that I'm sure they got on The Athletic or any subscribers they got because of that. That's exactly what he's supposed to be doing. But I didn't find, I read the article, I didn't find anything 
revealing, or I didn't find anything that blew my mind that we didn't already know or assume we knew. Otherwise, the Packers continue with their OTAs. David Bakhtiari had some interesting comments. He's finally there. He's healthy. He basically said he was there just just to get his check or his payment for the off-season activities that he gets a bonus for. He did talk a little bit about a rebuild. Here was his quote. Uh, everyone would love to take the words that I said, but, I mean, it's to me, flat out how I look at it, it's disrespectful to say you're not rebuilding off a Hall of Fame quarterback. It was disrespectful to say you weren't rebuilding off of Brett Favre when he moved to Aaron. No one knew who Aaron was and what he was going to be. So I'm not going to sit here and uh, like pull back those words because that, that that is when you look at how it's been built and how we were chasing after it and how the cap. There's a bunch of situations that can definitely allude to it. We have a young team, like, but now with that, people go to the word rebuild on an extreme level, or you look at what it is. The beauty is I have no clue, and that's the beauty of it. That's what football is. We're all bad in a thousand. Come. The first game of the year, and we'll figure it out. So that was the quote. We'll edit out the <laughs> the F-bomb there from Bakhtiari. But I did, I appreciate that perspective because I think what essentially what Bakhtiari was saying is that people hear the word rebuild and immediately think you're going to win three or four games. That doesn't necessarily mean that. He said, well, his best friend is Aaron Rodgers. So he says at the beginning of that that it's disrespectful not to call it a rebuild, but he said you have to maybe redefine what you think a rebuild is. A rebuild could mean you win three games. Like the Arizona Cardinals are going to do a full rebuild, and they might win three games this year, and they're being very transparent about that. But a rebuild might mean that you win seven or eight or nine games. The the comparison he used later on, I don't have the audio of it, but the comparison he used was to Seattle Seahawks last year where people said Seattle was going to rebuild after they trade Russell Wilson. Well, they went 9-8 and eight, made the playoffs. That could very easily happen in a rebuild. I did appreciate that perspective from Bakhtiari as he was finally at Lambeau Field or at the practice center over the course of this week. All right, we'll get back after on Monday next week. Hopefully, we'll be talking about a couple Brewer wins. Hopefully, we'll be talking about at the end of that Cincy road trip on Monday. We'll be talking about getting some of those guys from the injury list back. Maybe we'll have some movement on the Adrian Griffin story. If that happens over the weekend, we'll discuss that too on Monday. Have a good weekend, everybody. We'll chat with you then.